I'd like to have you take your Bibles and turn with me to Psalm 119, the very first verse, Psalm 119. I think one of the most perplexing questions that we struggle with as Christians is the question of suffering, of pain. There are two basic levels to this question. At the first level, generally speaking, we might ask if God is all-powerful and if God is all-perfectly good, then why is there suffering and evil in the world in general? That's a common question, and the short answer is sin. Sin is the reason for suffering, and God is working out his redemptive plan to undo the curse of sin. But at a second level, quite a bit more personal, I would say, we might ask if God is all-powerful and perfectly good, and if I am his child, saved by grace through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and his atoning work for me on the cross, then why am I suffering? That's a more personal question. Why am I struggling with health issues? Why did my baby have to be miscarried? Why did my marriage have to be filled with pain? Why did my child turn out to give me a life filled with pain and sorrow? Why is money always an issue? Why did a loved one betray me? And we ask why and why and why? That's the question I'd like to address this morning in our summer series, Biblical Answers to Difficult Questions. I'd like to use the Word of God to answer that question, what is the purpose for my suffering? What is the purpose for my suffering? It's always exciting to me to preach a message that I know applies to every single person. That's exciting because we know that the Word of God is, is sharper than a two-edged sword and will do its work. Now, as I ask that question, what is the purpose for my suffering? For some of you, this may be review. You may feel as though you have some answers to that, and I, and I don't doubt that. But this is a worthy review because we can't ever really think about this too much because you need it when those moments of suffering come. And then for others of you, this may be a new way to view suffering. We'd like to view it through the lens of what Scripture says and understand that our God is faithful. Now this morning, we're going to go kind of Bible study style. What we're going to do is examine a number of different texts beginning in Psalm 119. But overall, I have three goals this morning. The first goal is I'd like to give you a brief theological foundation for suffering. I want you to understand the theology behind suffering, and we'll just spend a moment on that. And then second, we'll spend most of our time on this. I'd like to give you eight purposes for your suffering, eight different reasons that you may suffer. And then third, just to kind of cap this off at the end, I want to give you some very practical spiritual preparations for your suffering. In fact, I'm going to give you three things to not do and three things that you should do. So, first of all, we're going to do a, a brief theological foundation for suffering. I know you're in Psalm 119. Just stay there. Uh, we'll get there in a moment. I'm going to reference some other verses that you might want to make some notes of. But you have to have good theology in order to be able to suffer well. Without a foundation of theology, you're left wondering what's going on. You're left wondering what God is doing. And after a period of time, you might even feel like God is picking on you. You might look at all the Christians around you who seem to have a perfect life and you wonder, why, why am I the target? Well, why am I walking around with a bullseye on my back? And so you have to have theology. That's our foundation. So I want to very briefly give you four foundation stones for a theology of suffering. 
four foundation stones. Here's the first foundation stone, God's ownership. God's ownership is our first foundation stone. Exodus 19.5, God says, all the earth is mine. Job 41.11, whatever is under the whole heaven is mine. Psalm 50, verse 12, the world is mine and all it contains. There's no lack of clarity here, is there? Everything belongs to God. And so right here at the foundation, the first foundation stone, we understand that God has every moral right. God has every ethical right as our creator to do with his creation as he pleases. And our job is to submit willingly and to trust in his goodness. First foundation stone, God's ownership. There's a second foundation stone we'll call God's control. God's control. In Job chapter 2, verse 10, Job says to his wife, shall we, not, shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? That everything comes from God. It is a misnomer to say that the good things come from God and the bad things come from Satan. Scripture is very clear that everything proceeds from God. Now, from Job chapter 1, we also learn that God does not do evil, but he is in total sovereign control of the one who does do evil, that is Satan, and he uses that evil for his own purposes. In fact, God proclaimed of himself in Isaiah 46, 9 and 10, and you can't run away from this truth. You can't explain this away. He says, I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me. And here's what he, how he defines himself with sovereign control, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. So you ask, why does something happen? The answer is the same 100% of the time. God did it. He declares the end from the beginning. You don't have any choice except to either accept that truth as Bible truth or to reject it. Those are the only two choices. There's a third foundation stone we'll call God's integrity. God's integrity. Romans 8.28, very familiar to you. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. And we want to focus on a very key word. All things work together for good. Not a few things. Not some things. Not 98% of things. All things. And what do you note here? He desires good for you. That is the integrity of God. That when bad and seemingly evil things come into your life, his ultimate design is for good. And just because you don't have a view of the whole picture doesn't mean that his working of suffering and pain in your life isn't going to turn out for good. You can trust him. You can trust him that if he says all things work together for good to those who are in Christ, he is a God of integrity and he will keep his word. And then there's one more foundation stone to kind of build a a theology here. We'll call this one God's glory. God's glory. This is the most important foundation stone. Romans 11.36 says, For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. The ultimate purpose for everything that God does is for his own glory. And you may have heard the phrase that, that everything happens for your good and God's glory. That is the third and fourth foundation stones. He's a God of his word. You can trust his integrity and you can trust that all honor and glory will go to him. 
And you have to have that foundation. You, you can't build on, that, on anything else. Now, with that foundation of God's ownership, God's control, God's integrity, and God's glory, I want to be very clear here. And Psalm 88 that I read earlier proves this. That doesn't negate in any way, shape, or form the pain. It doesn't negate the agony. It doesn't negate disappointment. It doesn't negate the tears. It doesn't take away the the awful pit in your stomach when terrible things happen. The weeping is real. The heartbreak is real. But even in the midst of the terrible emotions that accompany suffering, your theological foundation is that which enables you to have joy in the midst of suffering. The joy that God owns me. God is in sovereign control over me. God is a God of integrity. He's promised to do good for me. And most importantly, that I will be an instrument of God's glory even in my suffering. Now, that's the foundation. We're going to build on that foundation. And I'd like to give you eight purposes for your suffering. And we're going to begin in Psalm 119 and work our way forward to the New Testament. Eight purposes for your suffering. The first purpose, suffering draws you to the Bible. Suffering draws you to the Bible. You may have suspected this being here in Psalm 119. Psalm 119 is the psalm of a suffering saint. This is a man going through intense trials, and in the midst of that trial, he pins what would become the longest chapter in all of our Bible, the longest psalm, and it's about the Bible. He finds solace, he finds comfort in the Word, and there's so many familiar verses to us here. Psalm 119, verse 1, blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. The psalmist knows that blessing comes from obedience. Another familiar verse to you, verse 11. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. The psalmist knows that infusing the word of God into his mind, into his heart, creates a holier life. Familiar to you also, verse 18. Open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. The psalmist knows that he must have God's help to perceive the wonders of God's law, God's word the treasures that are contained therein. Verse 24, familiar to you. Your testimonies are my delight. They are my counselors. The psalmist knows that in his time of trouble, the law of God is his counselor. It's his guide. It's it's the, the, the information that he needs. What is the psalmist doing here? He's delighting in the word of God. But what drove him to this point? What drove him to write, blessed are those whose way is blameless? What drove him to write, open my eyes that I may behold wonderful things? What drove him to write, your testimonies are my delight? I'll show you what drove him to the word, what drew him to the word. Look with me at verse 71. Here's what got him to that point. Psalm 119, verse 71, this is what drew him to the word. It is good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. He says it was good. It's a word that means joyful. It was appropriate. When was the last time you thanked the Lord in joy for your affliction? That's what he's doing. He's afflicted, he says. It's a word that means bent down, brought low, humbled, put your face in the dust. Now, why is this good? Well, there's a purpose statement here, that. 
meaning for the purpose of, in order to, for the reason of, that I might learn your statutes. And what has the psalmist learned? Looking just a little bit before and a little bit after, we can see two things the psalmist learned by being driven to the word by suffering. First of all, he learned obedience. He learned obedience. Look back at verse 67. And many of you will smile at this because this has been your experience. Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. What does that sound like? That's a divine spanking, isn't it? That helps us. So he learned obedience. The second thing he learned, he learned of God's faithfulness. He learned of God's faithfulness. Look at verse 75. I know, O Lord, that your rules are righteous and that in faithfulness you have afflicted me. That is a thank you to God for afflicting him. If you have small children, have they ever turned around and said, thank you for that spanking, Father, I needed that badly. But that's what he's doing. And as you read all of Psalm 119, the flavor you get is that in the midst of suffering, the psalmist is just drawn to the word of God magnetically. And he clings to the word. Now, one of the things that's difficult about suffering is that we don't schedule it, right? We don't look ahead on our calendar and say, I I think mid-November looks like a time for a major life-changing crisis. Let's circle that date on the calendar. It usually comes as a surprise. Some terrible thing crossing your path that you didn't plan on. It can literally change your day, your week, your month, your year. But it was God's plan all along. And one of the purposes of that suffering coming to you is to take many other distractions away such that suddenly, all of a sudden, you're drawn to his word in ways that maybe you haven't been ever before or at least in a very long time. And I can promise you this. In your times of suffering, as you look back on your times in the word of God, the sermons you listen to, the the prayers you pray through the Psalms, those will be among the sweetest and most intense times of communion with the Lord you've ever known. And you'll look back fondly on them. And then you also can join the psalmist in retrospect and say, it was good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes, that I might run to your word. There's a second purpose for your suffering. Suffering produces endurance. Suffering produces endurance. We'll flip over to the New Testament now to James chapter 1. Very familiar passage to us. All the passages we're going to, you know. We want to kind of put them all together into one package here. The second purpose for your suffering is that suffering produces endurance. In James chapter 1, James is writing to Jewish believers who are scattered. They've been ousted from their homeland of Israel because of persecution, and now they've settled in other parts of the world. They're called the dispersion, diaspora. And James doesn't mince words. He immediately addresses the persecution. He immediately addresses the suffering that they're enduring. James chapter 1, verse 1. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Now, what James has just done here in just a few verses is he's taken the reader on a progression. It's a, it's a journey. It's a cause-effect journey. 
And I want to start at the end of that cause-effect journey and work our way backwards for a moment. The end result, the, the effect, is verse 4, that you are perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Now, perfect is a Greek word that doesn't have to mean absolute perfection or sinlessness. That's not what James is talking about. That won't be achieved in this life, but it does have the idea of being mature, of being finished, of being well-rounded. What does this mean? It means there, there aren't any holes in your faith in the Lord. There is no situation in which you cannot trust him. There is no exceptions that, Lord, I can trust you these 99 times, but this 100th time I can't. Nothing can shake the foundation of your faith. You are, as it says at the end of verse 4, lacking in nothing. You don't have limits on your trust to the Lord. There isn't an upper limit. You're not shaken in your faith. Yes, you may be emotionally destroyed. You may be grieving in the dirt. You may be weeping in your bed. You may be crying every day of your life. But your trust in the Lord never wavers. And where does that maturity, where does that totality of faith in the Lord come from? Moving back in the cause-effect journey, it comes from steadfastness. This is a word that means the ability to hold out and to bear up under anything. That you can hold out, that you can, as it were, you're underwater and you can hold your breath as long as you need to. And you might say, wow, I want that. What sermon could I listen to? What book could I read to get steadfastness that has the full effect of lacking nothing in my faith? How do you get that steadfastness? Well, moving back in the cause effect, you get it by suffering trials of various kinds. It's not that you read a book. It's that the book hits you over the head. A diversity of suffering. Trials of various kinds. What does that mean? It means that God is oh so creative in all the ways he can make you mature. The effect is lacking in nothing in terms of your trust in the Lord. The cause is steadfastness, and the steadfastness is given to you by means of suffering. Now, do you see why James says to consider it a joy? To count it all joy when you meet trials of various kinds? Because what God is doing for you is he's building faith upon faith upon faith such that you learn to trust him in deeper and deeper waters. If you're a parent, you remember maybe taking a small child to the ocean and the, the little child gets one millimeter of water on his or her feet and they scream like they're drowning. But as they get older, they wade in deeper and deeper. One of the most fruitful spiritual exercises that any of us can do is very simply to catalog all the ways the Lord has been faithful to you in the midst of trials and suffering. And the longer you live, the easier that is to do. All the ways the Lord was clearly helping you and assisting you and comforting you. As you look back, you can say, oh, I see the hand of God all along the way. In fact, that begins all the way at the beginning of your life, doesn't it? That the Lord preserved your life until the moment he called you into salvation in Christ. You were one accident, one illness, one misstep away from an eternity of judgment. But God preserved you until that moment that you bent the knee to Christ. And ever since bringing you the faith in Christ, yes, in his sovereign plan, he's brought suffering to you, but hasn't he been good? And hasn't he been faithful? Hasn't he been giving blessings all along the way? 
And so what is James telling you to do? Listen carefully. James isn't just saying, look back at the faithfulness of God and take comfort. He's actually saying, look ahead at the faithfulness of God by faith. Rather than just looking back at God's faithfulness and how he's grown your trust in him and having joy because of what he's done in the past, James says, look ahead and trust that even now in this moment of suffering, this moment of endurance, he is building steadfastness in you. He is building this wall, this impenetrable wall of faith around you. And the bricks and the mortar of that wall consists of the suffering that you're going through right now. That is phenomenal. That is faith that you trust that what you're going through at this moment will have a future positive result. And James says, make it a joyful thought. There's a third purpose for your suffering. Suffering increases holiness. Suffering increases holiness. Turn back just a few pages to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12, and sometimes the question of God's discipline comes up in the midst of suffering. I, I get this question often as a pastor. And the question is very simply, I, I've been suffering a lot. Do you think that God is disciplining me? I think that's one of the easier theological questions to answer from Hebrews 12. The simple answer to the question, is God disciplining me? Yes, he is. But let's add some layers to that question with this very familiar passage. Hebrews 12, verse 5. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. Now, the writer of Hebrews here is referencing Proverbs 3, 11 and 12. And there's some important words here. They're, they're tough words. Words like discipline, which means training, teaching, pushing. Words like reproved, it means to be exposed or or convicted, corrected. Words like chastises, it means to be flogged or whipped. These are tough words, trained, taught, exposed, convicted, flogged, whipped. This is why the writer In verse 5 says, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord. The conjunction in verse 6, for, meaning because or the cause of something. It tells us why we're not to regard lightly God's discipline. Because God's discipline proves that he loves you and he has received you as his child. So you see, when you ask me, is God disciplining me? I jump to the answer, yes. Yes, he is. Because he loves you. Verse 7, God is treating you as sons. But the writer goes beyond that and he tells us to look beyond the pain. To look to the result. Look at the result. Second half of verse 10 in Hebrews 12. He disciplines us for our good that we may share his what? Holiness. There's the result. Verse 11, for the moment all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. By the way, this suffering which increases holiness is not something that we're meant to go through alone. This is something we go through together, and it's something, in fact, we're meant to help each other with. Look at verse 12. 
The writer of Hebrews says, Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Now, what is this here? The writer is using the metaphor of running a race. And this connects all the way back to verse 1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. And so in verse 12, you have this picture of running the race of the Christian life. And the fact that suffering can make your arms tired, does the drooping hands, it can make your your legs wobbly, the weak knees. But he says, keep running straight ahead instead of going off course, instead of getting out of your lane, you stay in your lane. Now, how is it that we help one another in this increasing holiness? Well, in verse 12, just to be a little bit picky with the grammar here in Greek, it's not so much that you lift your drooping hands individually, but that you lift the drooping hands in the church. In Greek, it's simply, therefore, lift the drooping hands and strengthen the weakened knees to help one another. This is the church coming alongside each other. We don't walk through these struggles, these trials alone. We're to encourage each other. We're to lift up each other's arms as we all strive toward holiness. And by the way, the holiness being produced by suffering in which we lift up each other's arms and we strengthen each other's weakened knees, your testimony of trusting in the Lord, your testimony showing the peaceful fruit of righteousness, this has a profound impact on another group in the church, the unsaved. The unsaved who may believe that they're in Christ may believe that they're running the race. And we see them here very briefly. This is the person that's made a step toward Christ. They're they're gathering with the church. They may be even involved at some level. But they're prime targets to be blasted out of the vicinity of hearing the word of God. Now, just to be clear about this, since the whole book of Hebrews is in part addressing false believers within the church, professing believers who have not come all the way to faith in Christ, we see them here. So that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. What is this? This is a fork in the road for the unbeliever who's been hearing the gospel over and over again. They're vulnerable. They are either suffering themselves or they're seeing the suffering of others. They're vulnerable to being pushed to total apostasy and rejection of the Lord. Or if they're encouraged, if they're lifted up by the church from a human standpoint, perhaps they may come to saving faith as a result of suffering. They may come to saving faith because you encourage them, trust the Lord, trust the Lord. Or they may come to saving faith because they see you enduring suffering faithfully and they know in their heart of hearts, the deepest parts of themselves, that they would not have been faithful if they were going through what you're going through. And it forces them to confront the cross. And so it becomes actually an evangelistic act, your holiness impacting the world. And what happens then? What is one of the joys of suffering? 1 Peter 1, 7 says that it proves your faith, the tested genuineness of your faith. How does it prove your faith? It proves your faith to be genuine because you didn't run from the Lord. You trusted him. Peter says that that is great joy. 
There's a fourth purpose for your suffering. Suffering inspires fellow believers. Suffering inspires fellow believers. Turn back a few pages to Philippians chapter 1, if you would. Suffering inspires fellow believers. Philippians 1. Now, in this delightful epistle, Paul is writing from house arrest in Rome, and yet this letter is so filled with rejoicing that it's sometimes nicknamed the Epistle of Joy. And Paul commends the brothers that are around him in the church at Rome. He commends most of them, at least. Philippians 1, verse 14. Remember, Paul is under house arrest. He's imprisoned. He commends the brothers in Rome. Philippians 1, 14. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. He says they're much more bold. Two Greek words that means abundantly daring. That they have... They have gotten some courage from Paul, seeing Paul brought to Rome and imprisoned for his faith. Eventually, the faith Caesar himself, after a couple of years, many of the brothers in Rome stood and they proclaimed the gospel with daring and with courage and with boldness because they said, if that brother can be imprisoned for the gospel, then I can stand up for the gospel. Can I put it this way? You who are the suffering saints among us, we need you. We need you. We need your inspiration. We need to see your growing faith. We need to see your testimony of absolute trust in the Lord because that emboldens the rest of us. Can I put it this way? The ministry of the church has been built on the backs of suffering saints for 2,000 years. Now, Satan continues to make the same mistake. He thinks that by bringing suffering to God's people, he'll drive us away from God. That was Satan's contention in the book of Job, chapter 1, that if you, if you bring suffering into one of your faithful's lives, he'll run from you. But the only ones that suffering drives away are the frauds, the fakes. That's why the church thrives and is healthier when she suffers. The church has always been healthier when she suffers. In January of 1981, a Colombian terrorist group called M-19 captured Chet Bitherman. Chet was a Wycliffe Bible translator, and M-19's demands were simple. Wycliffe must leave Colombia. They must stop their work of evangelization and Bible translation. Chet Bitherman was held captive for seven weeks while his wife and two young daughters waited in Bogota, After seven weeks, one of the heads of M-19 took a pistol and shot Chet Bitherman in the chest fatally, executing him because he wouldn't give in to their demands. And from a human standpoint, you might ask, what possible good could come from this? What possible good could come from leaving a widow with two small girls to raise on her own? That was 1981. In 1982, the following year, applications for overseas missionary work with Wycliffe Bible translators, more than doubled. And it has continued that way for the past decades, such that now the gospel is reaching thousands of previously unreached people groups. Satan thinks that by bringing suffering to the church, he harms us. All he does is strengthen us. And can I say this to you? You might not be a skilled Bible teacher. You might not be the most eloquent spokesperson for the faith. But when you suffer, 
and others see, yes, your pain and your anguish, but accompanied by peace and dignity and calm in the storm, you have written them a thousand-page inspiration to help their lives. And you may count yourself among the glorious saints who lead the church into maturity, and you lead the church into greater endurance just by your faith and just by your suffering. There's a fifth purpose for your suffering. Suffering completes Christ's afflictions. Suffering completes Christ's afflictions. Turn with me to Colossians 1, just a few pages over. Colossians chapter 1. Colossians, also written while Paul was imprisoned, gives us another insight into the purpose of your suffering. Colossians 1.24, right at the very end of the, near the very end of the chapter. Suffering completes Christ's afflictions. And we see this in verse 24. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church. Now let's be very clear here. We never want to panic when we read a Bible verse that seems a little odd to us. It's not that somehow the suffering of Christ on the cross was incomplete or that it was insufficient for atonement. Hebrews 10 verse 10 says that Christ's sacrifice was the once for all sacrifice. The, the point here is not that there's more atonement needed. There's no more atonement needed. The price for your sin is fully paid if you've received Christ by faith and you've asked him to apply the penalty of sin that he paid to the debt that you owe to God the Father for your sin. Atonement is done. So what is Paul talking about here? What is he saying? What Paul is doing is he's reflecting our unity with Christ, that when the church suffers, Christ suffers. We've been buried with Christ. We've been raised with Christ. We've been made alive with Christ. Colossians 2 and 3 enumerate these truths. And we suffer with Christ. In fact, Romans 8, verse 17, Paul makes this conditional. He says, we are heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him, in order that we may also be glorified with him. And so, in the sense that we are one with Christ, when the church suffers, Christ suffers also. But for Paul here personally, there were two effects of his suffering that I'd like to enumerate for you. The first effect of Paul's suffering was the church's blessing. The church's blessing. How is Paul suffering for the sake of the Colossians? He says, now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. Now, he's referring to this present moment, his imprisonment, his suffering at this moment of writing even. This is a more general reference to Paul's understanding that Ministry involves suffering. It's part of the package. He, he says that he rejoices in his suffering. I want to be very clear about this. In the midst of his suffering, he's not saying, I'm enjoying my suffering. He's saying, I have joy in the midst of it while it's happening. Paul's suffering was part of his call by God. God said of Paul in Acts 9, 15, and 16, He is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So how is Paul rejoicing on behalf of the Colossians because of his suffering? Well, if Paul hadn't suffered, the church of Colossae wouldn't even be there. 
He didn't plant the church in Colossae. He had never visited it, in fact, but they benefited from his ministry. They benefited from his willingness to suffer. And how was this? His willingness to suffer led him to the city of Ephesus to proclaim the gospel there. And he proclaimed the gospel to two men named Epaphras and Philemon. Epaphras and Philemon took the gospel back to Colossae, and the church at Colossae was founded. In fact, Paul's suffering in God's sovereign plan never has hindered the proclamation of the gospel. In fact, it, it furthers it. Philippians 1.12, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. Again, Satan's mistake. I'll hurt the church because it'll hinder the gospel. No, when he hurts the church, it proclaims the gospel. It furthers the gospel. And so Paul's suffering had the effect of the church's blessing. But there is a second effect that I think would be even more interesting to you, and that is that it, had, it gave Paul personal benefit. Paul had personal benefit. Now, how did this suffering benefit Paul personally? Paul was entering into Christ's sufferings. This was something he wanted to know. He wanted to understand at some level what it was like to be at the cross, what it was like to be at the resurrection of Christ. He wanted to enter into the shoes, the sandals, as it were, of his Lord. And he said this openly. Philippians 3, verse 10, his wish is that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. That was the benefit. There was a closeness. There was a unity with Christ that's special, that's unique. He said in 2 Corinthians 1, 5, for as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort as well. You understand this is one of the great secrets of the Christian life, that sorrow and joy can coexist, that they can exist together, and how suffering should, in fact, feed our joy. And you might say, you know, I, I understand suffering for the gospel, but I'm not a missionary, and I'm, I'm probably not going to get shot in Columbia, and I'm probably not going to suffer for the gospel. Could I encourage you that to one degree or another, all suffering is for the sake of the gospel. We could put all suffering into two categories. You ready for this? This is easy. Sinful, self-inflicted suffering and suffering inflicted by other things, right? There's no other category. You might ask, well, how can sinful, self-inflicted suffering be for the sake of the gospel? When you suffer because of your own sin, what does that drive you to? It drives you to the cross, it drives you to Christ. It drives you to prayer. It drives you to all the things we've already said. And it becomes gospel-centered. And you become repentant. And you become, as the psalmist said in Psalm 119, more obedient. What about the other category? The externally afflicted, inflicted suffering. That's building Christ-likeness in you. And I've already proven to you it makes you an effective witness. It makes you encouraging to the church. And I don't know if we can really fully grasp this thought. I know I can't. Your suffering is filling up. It's completing the suffering of Christ as you identify with him. That is a, a mind-blowing thought. There's a sixth purpose for your suffering. And you might have guessed this one. Suffering drives you to prayer. Suffering drives you to prayer. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 5, back to the book of Hebrews. 
Hebrews 5, suffering drives you to prayer. While you're finding Hebrews 5, let me remind you of the poignant and painful scene in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus has left the upper room. He's taking his disciples to the Garden of Gethsemane. Matthew 26, 38 and 39, Then he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. We're reminded from Luke twenty-two forty-four. being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. Now, you're probably familiar with those details, as if his tremendous sorrow and sweating drops of blood, a condition associated with extreme stress, as if those weren't enough. Hebrews 5, verse 7 In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Just a side note here says he was heard and he was saved not from the cross, but from eternal death. He was saved. But I want you to understand something here. Jesus prayed in a situation that you have never prayed in. Jesus prayed being fully and completely and sovereignly aware of every exquisite detail of every bit of suffering he was going to endure. Everything that he was going to have happened to him. He sovereignly knew exactly every detail. And his course of action, what was his defense against the horrors that awaited him during his trial and his torture and his crucifixion? His course of action was to pray with loud cries and tears. This is prayer on a level of absolute desperate yearning for his father's help, not to take the problem away because it was his father's will for him to suffer, but to give him strength through it. And what happened then? I want to read a lengthy portion to you. You don't have to turn there, but from John's gospel, we get tremendous detail. And no longer do we see loud cries. No longer do we see tears. No longer do we see weeping. No longer do we see crying. John's gospel, chapter 18, verse 3. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. And when Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, Whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. Now, right about now, kind of humorously, Peter tried to start a revolution of some sort. didn't go very far. He draws his sword, cuts off the right ear of the high priest. Uh, really, the only sound you hear is the ear falling to the ground, plunk, and nothing else really happens at that moment. 
And Jesus, strengthened by his time in prayer, he says to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Listen to this. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? Strength and power and vigor. Our Lord faced the cross because of his prayer. If your suffering is of the level that you're driven to that level of prayer, that there's no question, that you're not even saying, maybe I should pray about this. Maybe I should think about going to the Lord. No, you're already on your knees before you can even see straight. If your prayers are even characterized by loud cries and weeping, that is a sweet place of fellowship with the Lord. And in those moments of weeping, in those moments when your, your hands are, are lifted up, as it were, empty and asking God, like the psalmist in Psalm 88, stretching out his hands, you will have that moment where in your heart of hearts you say, this is the sweetest communion I've ever known with the Lord. And you sense his presence in ways you never have before, perhaps. And in fact, in years to come, you'll look back and say, oh, I hated that time of suffering, but I loved those times in prayer. It's the seventh purpose for your suffering. Suffering exalts God. Suffering exalts God. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 12. 2 Corinthians 12. This is very familiar to you as well. It's, a, it's an event in Paul's life that he shares that has to do with his own personal suffering. The Apostle Paul is being plagued by what he calls a messenger of Satan, an opponent within the church who's harassing him at every turn. And Paul begged God to take this opponent away. You've begged God for things. You know what this feels like. 2 Corinthians 12, verse 8. He says, three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. Verse 9, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Translation, that's a very nice way of the Lord saying no, and don't ask again. He goes on, therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. God's answer for Paul was not to take the problem away, but to say, rely on the grace that I give you. Now, what is Paul saying here? This is a phenomenal statement. He's saying that the weaker he is, the more dependent he is on the grace of God, the less strength he has on his own, the more that Christ is exalted. Paul even says, I'm going to boast of my weaknesses because as weak as I am, that means Christ is all the stronger. This is why Paul was able to say in Romans 5, 3, that he rejoices in his suffering because his suffering is pointing all glory to God. Little side note here, one of the reasons that he's writing 2 Corinthians is because some of the uppity believers at the church at Corinth were telling Paul, Paul, you're, you're weak. You're, you're just not all that we think you ought to be. You're, you're kind of namby-pamby. You're kind of wimpy. You're not very impressive at all. And he says, I know, isn't it great? Isn't it awesome? I'm the worst thing you could possibly imagine to represent the gospel of Christ. Because when I am weak, Christ is strong. What an answer. 
I know that every one of you who know Christ, you desire to do something great for the Lord. I I know you have that desire. You desire to have significance in the kingdom. You desire to be known in the kingdom. And that's not a bad desire. Can I tell you this? There is no more significant thing that you can do as a believer in Christ than to shine honor and glory and worth heavenward toward your Savior. That yes, when you are alone in your bed in tears because of your suffering, you are doing a mighty work of God. That yes, when you have no answers and there seems to be no earthly solution and no one on this earth really knows what you're going through, you are doing a mighty work for God. That yes, when it seems that the answers to your prayers are consistently no or not now or not ever or don't ask again, that yes, you are doing a mighty work for the glory of God. And that yes, when you feel like one more trial will drive you to total helplessness, when you wake up one morning and say, Lord, I'm not getting out of bed because I can't take one more thing, that yes, you are doing a mighty work for the glory of God simply by your pointing all glory to him. The weaker you are, the greater he is magnified. Amen? So one more purpose for your suffering. It's my favorite one. Saved it for last. Suffering increases heavenly reward. Suffering increases heavenly reward. Turn back just a few pages to 2 Corinthians 4, verse 16. I know these are all familiar passages, but we're putting them together into one package here. Suffering increases heavenly reward. Paul here is extolling the great privilege that the gospel ministry is to him, even though it's cost him dearly. And here he gives his eternal perspective. 2 Corinthians 4, beginning in verse 16. He says, So we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Now look at Paul's logic. Here's his logic. The suffering in his life, what he calls this light momentary affliction, this suffering is preparing. It's a word that means working on Paul's behalf. It's working for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. I want you to stop right now and ponder that. Everything you suffer is working on your behalf. It is an investment on your behalf. It's working for you. Now, this could present a theological problem. It could be thought that God is not being fair in giving a greater reward to those who suffer more and a lesser reward to suffer those who suffer less. We already know there are degrees of heavenly reward. Uh, the parable of the minas in Luke chapter 19 indicates different rewards for different levels of faithfulness. Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 9, 6, that the one who sows sparingly will reap sparingly. The one who sows bountifully will reap bountifully. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 15, 41 and 42, there is one glory of the sun, another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars. For star differs from star in glory, so it is in the resurrection of the dead. So we understand there's differing levels, degrees of reward. But here's the potential theological problem. Are we saying that heaven 
And ultimately, new heaven and new earth will be a little less happy, a little less joyful for some than it is for others. Well, first of all, we already know what our heavenly reward has in common for all of us, to all believers, the wiping away of every tear, the restoration of every hurt, the perfect bliss and union that we all have with Christ. But to answer that potential, that potential conundrum there, that puzzle of how some believers might have more reward than others, we would look to the theological genius of Jonathan Edwards, the great 18th century theologian, and he uses the metaphor of heaven being like, you ready for this theological term, an ocean of happiness. Here's the term he uses. And all believers are like vessels or cups or bowls to be filled in this ocean of happiness. And he uses the biblical truth of our sinlessness. Now, you're saying, what are you talking about? Listen to Edwards. He says this. Every vessel that is cast into this ocean of happiness is full, though there are some vessels far larger than others. And there shall be no such thing as envy in heaven, but perfect love shall reign throughout the whole society. Those who are not so high in glory as others will not envy those that are higher, but they will have so great and strong and pure love to them that they will rejoice for those with greater reward. And you might say, well, he can't just make that up. He's not. He's using the logic of 1 Corinthians 12, 26, where Paul says, if one member is honored, then all rejoice together. That those with the smaller vessels, so to speak, are perfectly filled with rejoicing because of those with the larger vessels. That when you meet Chet Bitterman in heaven, shot in the chest for his missionary work, in Colombia, and you see the magnificence of his reward, you'll rightly rejoice with him, you'll rejoice for him. And since there's no envy, there can only be perfect rejoicing on each other's behalf, and those with the larger vessels will be perfectly humble, so there's no attitudes of superiority. Instead, what are we going to see? We're going to see Romans 12, 4 and 5 lived out in perfection for all eternity. For as in one body, we have many members and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. What does all this mean? It means that it seems that one of the purposes of your suffering is for God to enlarge and expand your ability to enjoy his glory, to give rich and delightful reward for you, for your endurance and for your faithfulness, or if I could put it this way, to make your cup larger in which to float in the ocean of happiness. I want to do one more thing. I want to give you spiritual preparation for suffering. And if you'll give me one more moment, Three don'ts and three do's. First of all, don't underestimate the sovereignty of God. Don't underestimate the sovereignty of God. You remember the story of Joseph, second in command of, of Egypt. He told his older brothers not to be afraid. Now, why were his older brothers afraid? They were terrified that Joseph would take vengeance on them because they had just done that little thing of kidnapping him and selling him into slavery. But he says in Genesis 50, verse 20, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive. God has been ordaining every event for all time. Do you think that maybe 
you've slipped a little in his notice? Never. Don't underestimate the sovereignty of God. In fact, if I could put it this way, whatever suffering you're going through, if you could fast forward into eternity and then turn and look back and see that suffering that's coming and see the results and the wise actions of God, you would say, yes, that was exactly the right thing to do. And if you could go backwards in time, you would say, put me through it again because it was exactly the right choice. Don't underestimate the sovereignty of God. Here's a second don't. Don't squander the opportunity to trust God. Don't squander the opportunity. If you are so set on only begging God to get you out of a trial, to get you out of a problem, to relieve your suffering, which is usually accompanied by overwhelming complaining and self-imposed misery beyond the suffering itself, can I say this in all love? Stop. Stop and get your spiritual bearings straight. And instead of merely begging God to rescue you, plead with God to help you suffer well, to help you do this well with trust and peacefulness. Don't waste the opportunity to get into that sweet place of communion and fellowship with the Lord. Don't be in the midst of a storm and on your knees crying, not in asking for help, but crying in self-pity. Oh, Lord, why me? Why me? Why me? And then the storm is gone. Dry your tear. You kind of go, well, I feel a little ridiculous now. There's a third don't. Don't compare yourself to anyone else. Don't compare yourself to anyone else. There will always be someone suffering less than you, and from our perspective, it's everybody else, right? For some of you, it may seem like everyone you know is suffering less than you. There are some in our church that just functioning on a day-to-day basis takes huge effort that most of us can't comprehend. For others of you, there's emotional strain of difficult and painful relationships that cast a cloud over each day. Don't compare yourself to anyone else. Run your race. Stay in your lane. This is what God has for you. And let me give you three do's. Do cultivate the right perspective of your suffering. Do cultivate the right perspective of your suffering. And we read this a moment ago, and I think this is fascinating, what Paul's view of his own suffering was. He called it this light momentary affliction. And it might be easier to say, well, Paul, no offense, but you can't possibly know what I'm going through here in the 21st century. Wouldn't it be a little ridiculous to tell Paul that? Like like you're really going to say, yeah, well, all you've been through, Paul, is being betrayed by your closest friends, seeing friends in the ministry beaten near death, being whipped with 39 lashes five different times, being beaten with rods three times, stoned and left for dead once, shipwrecked three times, lost at sea for a night and a day, crossing flooding rivers, avoiding robbers on the road, being bullied by Jews, then bullied by Gentiles, being slandered by false believers, hiding in the church, countless sleepless nights, going without water, going without food, being caught in the elements, being freezing, being hot. Oh yeah, there's that disease you had in Galatia and the pressure you have for every single church in the whole world. But you can't possibly know what I'm going through. What did Paul call his suffering? Light, momentary affliction. But as good an example as Paul is for us to give us a proper perspective, the greatest example, of course, is Jesus himself. Listen to his perspective. We've already reviewed his agonizing prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane, but his perspective was perfect. He looked beyond his suffering and rightly judged that his suffering was worth the cost 
because he would receive in recompense for his suffering a kingdom of worshipers. Here's the perspective of Christ. Hebrews 12, 2 says that Jesus had this perspective. Who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. And here's this interesting word, despising the shame. What does that mean? It meant that he thought so little of the humiliation. He thought so little of the agony. He thought so little of the pain that he didn't even bother with it. He just endured it. He looked beyond it to the joy that was set before him. That's perspective. There's a second do. Expand your view of time. Expand your view of time. You have every right as a child of the living God through Christ to expect his care, to expect his tenderness, to expect his daily mercies. Absolutely. As those who have placed our faith in Christ, we relish promises like I will never leave you or forsake you and I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. But one way to be much more peaceful in your suffering is to expand your view of time that God is not obligated to solve your problems in your lifetime. There's great peace in that. We take our examples from the great heroes of the faith in Hebrews 11, men and women who place their hope in God and in a better future, and they're in that hall of faith, as we like to call it, because they didn't see God's promises come true in this lifetime. Why not? Why didn't they see God's promises come true? You ready for this? so that you wouldn't get left behind. Wait a minute. I'm connected to the saints of Hebrews 11 who died without seeing the promises come true? Yes. Listen to this, Hebrews 11:39. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us they should not be made perfect. Do you catch that? If the saints in Hebrews 11 got everything they hoped for, that would have meant that the kingdom of God had come to earth centuries before you were ever born. And it means you're lost. But God let them die in faith so that all would be resolved in the coming kingdom. One more do. Do set your mind on things to come. Do set your mind on things to come. The Bible is abounding with information about the ages beyond your lifetime on this earth. How encouraging prophecy is. 1 Thessalonians 4, the rapture and resurrection of the church. Paul tells us to encourage one another with those words. The book of Revelation, the only book of the Bible that gives the double blessing at the beginning and at the end that blessed is everyone who reads the words of this book. The book of Isaiah, saturated with glorious visions of the kingdom of Christ on earth. John 14 reminds you not to lose heart because Jesus is taking you to his father's house. Our eschatology is our hope, isn't it? It is our hope. I've prayed for you this week and my prayer for each of you is that you learn to suffer well because every one of you will do so. My prayer is that you learn to suffer well, to be well grounded in your theological foundation, that you're never shaken. You're never shaken. You never shake. You never tremble. And that you can faithfully say with the writer of Psalm 30, verse 5, weeping may tarry for the night, meaning I may cry all night long, but he finishes, but joy comes in the morning. That's our hope. Let's pray together. Our Father, we desire 
deeply. We yearn, we ask you, Lord, to be those that suffer well. I look out at these familiar, wonderful faces of your saints here. And I know many stories of their suffering. You know them in intimate detail. It's, it's been your plan for each of them. And Lord, in most cases, the end of our life will be characterized by suffering. That we will suffer illness or injury or pain and trials. And so, Lord, it's so key that we want to glorify you. We want to honor you that you might become more. We might become less. Lord, I pray for this body of believers that we would be characterized as those who suffer well, characterized as those who are firm in our foundation, that we trust our sovereign, omnipotent, omniscient God, that all things work together for good to those that love God and that are called according to his purpose. Lord, for those suffering in our midst, let them be encouraged this day. For those yet to be suffering in these ways, we pray your strengthening hand upon them that they might be ready and they might be willing to enter in that time of darkness knowing that the light of your word follows them right in. We love you and thank you in Christ's name. Amen.